We've been invited by the author to consider specific sins that we should be putting to death. I hope after the last session uh, that you've come to understand the sin which clings so closely to you. In this session, we're going to look through chapter 7 to 9 of John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin. In these chapters, he starts to offer practical directions for the task of putting sin to death. Uh, the first two are general directions. Then he follows up with nine particular directions that are very practical. Uh, but the first one of those nine is, is really detailed. It's like the diagnosis of the severity of our sin. So today, we'll focus on the two general directions and the first particular direction, uh, which will diagnose the severity of that sin which clings so close. The first general direction uh, should be self-evident, but our author labors for a long time over this. He says, There will be no mortification unless a man be a believer. He leans a lot on Romans 8 to prove this, and in Romans 8, verse 8 to 9, it says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. It might seem self-evident that you can't put sin to death unless you're a Christian, but John Owen puts a lot of stress on this. We must be born again by faith in Christ. Uh, in our church within this small pocket of southern Ontario, many grown men and women have stood in our baptismal tank sharing a similar story that went something kind of like this. Um, I grew up in the church my whole life, and I knew a lot about the gospel, but I never fully understood it. I never really repented of my sin. Maybe this is your story. Maybe you've grown up in the church your whole life. You've probably heard this before. Um, salvation comes through Jesus Christ, by faith, in Him, and with repentance. But if we say that there's faith and there's no repentance, it could be that our profession of faith was merely intellectually agreeing with the gospel and not real spiritual conversion. Our senior pastor says, if your faith isn't changing you, it hasn't saved you. The evidence of salvation isn't that once upon a time you professed to believe. The evidence of salvation is that you believe today and that you are being changed by the Holy Spirit. If you've only been professing but haven't been repenting, then today's the day to change that. Today's the day to turn from your sins and embrace forgiveness in Jesus Christ by faith. Everyone who responds in this way will be born again. They will be filled with the Holy Spirit. They will be freed from the penalty of sin. They will be freed from the punishment of sin. And they'll begin seeing sin's influence over them weakened as they put sin to death by the Spirit. There will be no mortification unless a man be a true believer. Okay, second general direction. 
Not as self-evident, but vitally important. We will not be putting sin to death unless we are ready to put all sin to death. Owens calls this the universality of obedience. And he summarizes it saying this, If we will do anything, we must do all things. So then, it is not only an intense opposition to this or that peculiar lust, but a universal, humble frame and a temper of the heart with watchfulness over every evil and for the performance of every duty. That is accepted. He references Isaiah 58 to prove this. Uh, The people of God were fasting, they were praying, and they were seeking God daily. But the Lord himself said that he rejected their fasting and praying. Why? Because while zealous in this one area, they were apathetic in another area. And as a result, God rejected their worship. Let's think on the case study that we introduced last session. Uh, You might want to put your anger to death because you see that it inconveniences the way that you live and the people you love, but maybe you're content with the covetousness which you crave because that's just in your mind and and it feels good to crave and lust over that car or lust over that outfit or lust for that home or long for that job. If this is the attitude we're cultivating, and zealous in some but apathetic in others, then then we won't see sin the same way God sees it, and we won't be putting it to death. Uh, Those are the two general directions. Now, uh, John Owen moves from the uh, general to the specific. It's time for that spiritual diagnosis that we talked about. Uh, This is going to help us identify the severity of our sin. Uh, With the help of the Holy Spirit, let's ask ourselves, is our sin accompanied by any of these seven dangerous symptoms? Uh, I got to warn you, um, the more I read this section of the book that we're about to consider, uh, the more I felt the weight of my sin bear down on me. Uh, This is going to be hard, and it may prove painful, but let's not avoid this. If we try to avoid this because it's too painful, we won't be doing ourselves any favors. Let the gravity of sin weigh down on you, and wait on the Lord to show you His grace and speak His peace. Here's the first symptom. Uh, In in veteratness, or... Inveteratness or inveterad I, I I've honestly tried this word like a dozen times and I still don't know how to say it. <laughs> I had to look it up and uh, dictionary.com says this word means uh, settled or confirmed in a habit, practice, feeling. Uh, thesaurus.com relates this word to addicted, hardened, lifelong, chronic, or deep rooted. That, that, that makes a little more sense to me. I think we might often call this, in our age, those habitual sins. To help us understand each symptom, I'll I'll phrase it as a question. So here's the question for the first symptom. 
Have you been frequently acting upon the same desire for years? That's dangerous. Our author says, If it is laid long corrupting in your heart, if you have suffered to abide in its power and prevalence without attempting vigorously the killing of it and the healing of the wounds you have received by it for some long season, your distemper is dangerous. Is that the case with the sin that clings closely to your heart? Okay, here's the second symptom. Again, I'll phrase it as a question. Um, do you secretly hope to find approval to keep practicing this sin? Well, how can we know if, if we think like this? Um, ask yourself this. When you're convicted of that same sin that you've fallen into again, do you try to convince yourself that some other good work that you've done is enough to justify that other sin? Uh, I, I, I might covet, but I mean, I mean to give to charity, so, so we're in a bad place. We're in a really bad place. If we start trying to balance out our sins with good works to justify going back to our sin, it's the deceitfulness of our wretched hearts that convinces us that good works justify a little more sin. That's a dangerous place to be in. All right, moving on. Symptom three, and this is the way that we um, this is the way that we abuse God's grace and kindness. Uh, here's the question: Do I lean on God's kindness enough to relieve my guilt? but without any intention of actually repenting? Romans 2 verse 4 says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I think we do this a lot in our small groups. I think I've seen it in mine and in the way that I interact in small group. Some of us are fine telling others about our sin, and we probably know that someone's going to respond kindly and share Bible verses uh, about God's kindness and grace. And as soon as we hear someone say grace, we think, oh, I'm good. But week after week, we keep coming back to small group and we keep confessing the same things and nothing changes. Why? Maybe because we only want enough grace to relieve our guilt, but we don't want enough grace to actually compel us to run from sin. What do we think God's given us grace for? Grace isn't a pill to numb our pain. It's the scalpel that cuts us open to remove the tumor. Listen to how John Owen says it. A resolution to this purpose to indulge in a man's self in any sin on the account of mercy seems to be altogether inconsistent with Christian sincerity and is a badge of a hypocrite. All right, let's keep going. Symptom four. Does the desire for this sin frequently overwhelm all other desires in your heart? We could have asked this question another way. Um, God's standard for righteousness 
isn't the actions, though. We could have asked, um, do you act upon the sin a lot? But God's standard isn't the action, it's the heart. In Matthew 5, when Jesus talked about lust, anger, retaliation, and other sin, he reiterates that it's not about the action. That's not the problem. It's the inner desire of our hearts. Yes, yes, stealing is a sin. But how often do the desires of your heart completely overcome with covetous cravings? Covetousness might just be the thing that's in the heart. It's not the action of stealing, but God cares about the heart. Okay, symptom five of seven. Uh, are you only motivated to change for fear of being punished by God? God's law is a mirror that reveals our sin to us. It reflects our sinful hearts. And the law should cause us to turn from sin and walk in the fear of God. But the law can only motivate us to turn from sin for fear of punishment. It's the gospel that motivates to turn for sin because you know you are loved by God. John Owen says that if you're relying on the law only and you can't move to the gospel as your motivation for change, you'll never really change. Okay, symptom six. Has your heart been hardened towards God even before this particular sin which clings so closely came about and started clinging closely? Our author invites us to examine the condition of our heart before this particular sin came about. Let's say again that you're beset with covetousness, even to the point of stealing. And that's maybe been around for uh, a year. Well, what was the condition of your walk with Christ before a year ago? John Owen believes that God will allow us to be entangled with particular sins in order to bring to mind other sins that are even more habitual and clinging even closer than this one. Could that be the case for you? <sighs> okay, last one, seven of seven. I know the gravity of this uh, diagnosis may have felt immense, and this last one might be the weightiest and might be the most dangerous symptom of all. Here's the question. Have you already been rejecting the conviction of God upon this sin? Isaiah 57.15 says, Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. Um, notice the order there. The people sinned, that's the iniquity. God disciplined, he, he said he struck them, but they kept going their own way, backsliding. Has that been happening in your life? Have you been purposefully numbing God's conviction on your heart from the Holy Spirit? I'll let the author summarize it himself. He says, now, if his lust has taken such a hold on him as to enforce him to break these bands of the Lord and to cast these cords from him, if it overcomes these convictions 
and gets again into its old posture, if it can cure its wounds it so receives, that soul is in a sad condition. Hebrews 12 says that the Lord disciplines the one who he loves. Like a good father will discipline his son to train him. Discipline hurts. It's painful, but it produces righteousness to the one who will be trained by it. If we are turning from God's discipline, we're turning from God's love. Do you believe that God loves you? Then let Him discipline you. Don't numb conviction. It's painful, but it's for your good. And it will train you to be putting sin to death and to enjoy the abundant life of the Spirit. When I first read through these seven symptoms, I thought to myself, uh, who doesn't have at least one of these? Not too long ago in my own life, I would have seen all seven of these dangerous symptoms accompanying my temptation. What about you? Are we treating the sins that cling so closely like the common cold? We gotta start thinking about it more like cancer. So where do we go from here? Let's finish with hope. Look again to the cross. And never forget this. If you have repented and believed in the Lord Jesus, you have been crucified with Christ. Take courage in the hope that one day God himself will strike that final blow and utterly destroy sin. Give thanks that by faith in Jesus you've been given the Holy Spirit and know that the Spirit wants to live his life through you. Knowing these things and knowing that these things give us hope and knowing the gravity that bore down on us because of these dangerous symptoms, maybe James 4 is the attitude we need to learn to cultivate right now and finish off with. It says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you.